Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast, where we have in-depth conversations with experts to help navigate wellness and empower all of us to make feasible changes to a healthier life and healthier world. In today's conversation, we had the privilege to talk to Dr. Dale Bredesen, who is an internationally recognized expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases. Dr. Dale Bredesen's career has been guided by a simple idea that Alzheimer's as we know it is not just preventable, but reversible, and his research led to the discoveries that today underlie the RECODE report. Dr. Bredesen's research explores previously uncharted territory in explaining the physical mechanisms behind the erosion of memory seen in Alzheimer's disease, and has opened the door to new approaches to treatment. This work has led to the identification of several new therapeutic processes that are showing remarkable early results. Dr. Bredesen is an innovator in medicine with over 30 patents to his name. Notably, he put much of his findings and research into the 2017 New York Times bestseller, The End of Alzheimer's. He has also authored The End of Alzheimer's program. In today's conversation, we talk about the fascinating science behind Alzheimer's. Dr. Bredesen is able to take a complicated and nuanced topic, and he explains it so well. He describes his prevention protocol and how he's been able to help people reverse their Alzheimer's. He explains that Alzheimer's process starts 20 years before symptoms start to show. So he guides us on small things we can do daily, starting now, to protect our brain health. And he shares his thoughts on the future of health and healthcare. This conversation with Dr. Bredesen was very memorable for us, and we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Bredesen. Welcome to the Futures Healthy Podcast. Uh, we're so excited to talk to you about all the work you've done, and thank you for taking time to chat with us today. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Dan. Uh, well, we want to jump right into it, and we've we've got a lot of questions from our community about just generally what Alzheimer's disease is. Could you briefly explain what it is and why it's such an important disease process to research? Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, the problem has been that we now, uh, as, a, as a culture, uh, mostly are dying of complex chronic illnesses, of which neurodegenerative diseases uh, are part of that group. And Alzheimer's disease is a degenerative disease that largely affects the brain and that leaves people with lesser and lesser cognition as time goes on, uh, typically a disease of older age. Although it, you know, in the past we were told this is a disease of your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and what has been found is that it starts about 20 years before a diagnosis. And so this is really a disease of your late 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, that just gets diagnosed 20 years later. So it really is something that comes on much earlier than we thought it did. And the idea of what is actually going on with this disease is changing dramatically. People have looked under the microscope, and of course the term Alzheimer's is just a pathological diagnosis. It says that you have lost synapses and you've lost neurons, and that when you look under the microscope, you see amyloid plaques and tau tangles, but it doesn't tell you what causes these. And so people have jumped to the conclusion that, aha, it's the, the uh, amyloid or the tau or both that actually cause the disease. But our research over the years has suggested something very, very different. Yeah, we're in medical school right now and we're being taught that 
amyloid plaque equals Alzheimer's. And it seems like a much more complex story. And a lot of uh, research in the past has targeted getting rid of these plaques, but it seems that these plaques could be protective. This is a very good point. Uh, And so, you know, to be fair, what you're taught is correct at the pathological level. In other words, when you see the plaques and the tangles and the synapse and neuron loss, that is Alzheimer's disease pathologically. But that doesn't tell you where it comes from, what actually causes the problem. And so several years ago, uh, the professor Robert Moyer and Rudy Tanzi from Harvard uh, showed that the amyloid that is produced actually has an antimicrobial effect. So more and more, we're seeing these things where the body actually makes things. You know, we're, we're seeing this a lot, for example, with COVID-19. So with COVID, as you know, there is the virus, and then there is the response to the virus, and people often die from cytokine storm. The, the big problem is that your innate immune system that is dealing with this, that is responding in a more nonspecific way to these various pathogens and producing these cytokines, et cetera, is on high alert and is, is continuing to go off. Your adaptive system, which is supposed to respond very specifically with appropriate T cells, B cells, appropriate humoral and and cellular immunity, part of its job is then to turn down the innate system and to clear the pathogen. Now, in COVID-19, if you can't do that effectively, you end up, you can die of cytokine storm, which is, of course, why things like dexamethasone have proven to be helpful. And some use Montelukast, and there are other ways, but anti-inflammatories at the right time and in the right amounts, good. With Alzheimer's, interestingly, it's the same sort of story, but played out over decades instead of a few weeks, where your innate immune system is on for many years. Instead of a cytokine storm though, it's more of a cytokine drizzle. So you've simply got the innate immune system that is chronically on. And interestingly, one of the things that is part of the innate immune systems trying to get rid of ongoing insults is amyloid beta. So here's the very thing that we have vilified for years, this amyloid, and it's being produced because of insults. So in fact, this is a protective response. It's kind of the opposite of what we've always been taught. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't participate in decreasing your synaptic network. So again, let's go back to the the comparison with COVID-19. What happened with COVID-19? We were told there is an insult, it's SARS-CoV-2. We were told that in in order to deal with this insult, we should stay indoors with with each other more, not go out and and, uh, we should be socially isolating, we should be uh, distancing, those sorts of things. Uh, and, And what happened was in pulling back to do this, less business happens, less commerce, the country then started to enter a recession. That's the same sort of thing that's happening in your brain. You now have insults and the difference is there are many different insults that contribute. It's not just one virus. And then therefore your brain is responding by by changing its signaling from growth and maintenance mode over to protection and pullback mode, protection, and shrink, basically shrinking down smaller networks. So very much like what would happen if you, you know, if you had a, uh, if you had a country and the country then was attacked, 
you would basically be putting out you know, the various things to try to kill the attackers. And in so doing, you would be now pulling back. You would no longer be in mode of, we're gonna build new bridges, we're gonna have new farms, things like that. You're trying to survive. And so one of the big problems is, you, know, you saw what happened with COVID-19. We know this is a virus. We know what to do about viruses. Okay, we improve your immune system. We want to give you better antivirals. People use things like remdesivir. Uh, and, and then we, and we also want to get vaccines to make it so that people, so there's a very well-worn path for what to do with viruses. In contrast with neurodegenerative diseases, people haven't understood what are these things? Is this just a viral illness? And a lot of people have said, well, I think it's a viral illness or I think it's a infectious or I think it's a toxic illness or I think it's vascular, you know, on and on. I think it's a prion illness, all these things. But in fact, if you look at it, it's quite different than that. This is a change fundamentally in a signaling network that is associated with neuroplasticity. And in fact, there are many insults. There are various viruses like herpes simplex and HHV6A. There are various, uh, there are various things like P. gingivalis um, from your oral microbiome. Uh, T. denticola also from your oral microbiome. And by the way, these things have been all found in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's. So what's happening is we're getting a number of these insults. They can be toxins, toxins, either inorganic toxins, things like mercury or air pollution has turned out to be very important uh, as a risk factor for Alzheimer's. Uh, organic toxins, things like benzene, toluene, glyphosate, or things like uh, biotoxins, like trichothecenes or ochratoxin A. So those are just some of the many insults. And one of the most common ones is insulin resistance. There are somewhere around 80 million Americans who have insulin resistance. This is a huge problem because of what we all eat, because of the standard American diet, because of the high carbohydrate load that so many of us get, because of the sedentary lifestyle, on and on. All these things contribute to insulin resistance. This is present in the vast majority of people with Alzheimer's disease. So what happens is what we call Alzheimer's is actually, when you look at the pathology, is a uh, protective response that involves amyloid and tau. Yes, it's prionic. That simply means that there is an amplification. And again, let's go back to signaling. If you look at what happens when you uh, when you have various changes in, in your homeostasis, in your, in your current status, you've got two different types of ways that you respond to these. Let's take a simple one, your serum pH. You want your serum pH to be 7.4. You never want it to be 10.4. You never want it to be 2.4. So let's say that you drink a soda, which is a little acidic, and let's say you're now driving it to a little more acidic, you have, of course, respiratory and metabolic compensation. That's homeostatic feedback. When you have a single goal outcome, in this case, pH 7.4, and you don't require amplification of the signal, then the way you deal with that is homeostatic. Compare that, on the other hand, to something where you have multi-goal outcomes. So let's look at blood clotting. There are times when you want your blood to flow, you don't want clotting, but if you now accidentally cut off your finger, you're going to die from blood loss if you don't have a clot that happens fairly rapidly. 
Therefore, this is a multi-goal outcome system and it, had, and it features a, a requirement for amplification. So therefore you end up with positive feedback. This literally is what prions are all about, we believe. So there is a, a positive feedback. So in the case of, of, just as you know, in the case of blood clotting, if you don't stop that process in its amplification, you get disseminated intravascular coagulation, DIC. And you've got a system of serine proteases that feed forward, feedback positively, give you that clot that you need. And then over about a week or so, you are slowly dissolving that clot. You've finished what you, you, know, what you needed to do. You've saved your life. Now, the same sort of thing is happening when you are looking at synaptic formation and maintenance. You have a rapidly, ap uh, a rapidly amplifying process as you're responding to experiences all the time. You've got these critical things going on. And so there is the same sort of amplification, which unfortunately, when you have amyloid, you're now amplifying the, the amyloid. There is a positive feedback loop between the amyloid and its parent amyloid precursor protein. So this is prionic loop signaling. So, so the bottom line here is, you need to look in these people and ask, what are the insults? Typically it's several, it's not just one although there may be one dominant one, and ask what is actually driving this process. That's fascinating. And uh, I kind of want to plug in your book right now. The End of Alzheimer's is a wonderfully written book. And like you were saying, there's so much nuance to what causes Alzheimer's. And honestly, it just kind of seems like it's your body trying to protect itself and it's doing the right things. It's just we have this lifestyle and these environmental toxins that throw it out of balance. Um, something that's really fascinating that you were saying is that we have these bugs in our brain, which we've always been told that our brain is sterile, that there aren't any bugs and we're protected with the blood brain barrier. Um, but you, you mentioned a, a, a ton of different insults uh, that can happen to our brain. And I kind of want to jump into your program then. Um, so you have the pre-code and recode and pre-code is essentially preventative, which we love. We're very into preventative medicine yeah. and clearly with a 20 year process, you can prevent it. It's actually kind of nice to know that it doesn't happen so immediately, but it's a slow process that you can kind of, um, stop in its tracks if you can. So do you mind running through what exactly your pre-code and your recode pro programs are? Sure. No problem. So you brought up a really good point, which is that when you've got this long runway, you really have an opportunity to stop this in its tracks. And the earlier you start, prevention is best so that you never even enter the, the pre-symptomatic phase. But if you look at this, this disease really has four different phases. There's a pre-symptomatic phase where you're already beginning your pathophysiology, but you don't know it yet. And that's been shown very nicely elegantly by a number of groups with cerebrospinal fluid and with uh, PET scans where you can actually see the process early on. Wow. That is going to last for several years. You're then having SCI, subjective cognitive impairment, where you know there's something wrong, but you don't, you're not labeled as having Alzheimer's yet. You know there's something wrong, but your cognitive testing is still in the normal range. And that may last a decade. That's SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. 
Then if you don't do anything at that point, you go on to MCI, mild cognitive impairment, where now not only do you know there's something wrong, but also in fact, your tests will show your cognitive tests are abnormal. And five to 10% of people with MCI will convert to Alzheimer's disease each year. And what that means by definition is that they've begun to lose their activities of daily living. So again, you can see what we call Alzheimer's disease is an end stage phenomenon. It's like saying widely metastatic cancer. Why would you wait to treat cancer until it's widely metastatic? Mm -hmm. So again, you can see this disease we call Alzheimer's should be very rare. People should get on prevention and everyone should be on prevention. Or if they're not gonna do that, please get on reversal at the earliest possible point. Don't wait when people say, oh, you know, it's probably not a problem. Yeah, and then later on, they finally tell you, oh, it's Alzheimer's, there's nothing you can do. So that you have to look at this very differently. Yes, we have this big runway, but please don't wait until the end. And right now, because we're all being told there's nothing that can be done, people just wait and wait and wait. And it's, it's really, it's literally killing many, many people. And actually, Professor Christine Yaffe from UC San Francisco showed a number of years ago that this is now the third leading cause of death. So we developed two programs, as you said, pre-code, which means prevention of cognitive decline, and recode, which means reversal of cognitive decline. We published the first cases of reversal of cognitive decline back in 2014. We published another hundred of them in 2018. Um, and then we've Amazing. put out a couple of books on these. I, have, I actually have a book coming out this August, uh, which is called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. And seven wonderful stories, first person stories written by people who survived Alzheimer's and who are doing quite well now. And it's just so great to see these people who were told it was hopeless to do so well. So here's the thing, we, we know the various insults that can give you the problem. So we wanna look at those and we've divided this up into the subgroups. So we see people where it's mostly inflammatory, people where it's mostly glycotoxic, people where it's mostly atrophic, people where it's mostly toxic, vascular, traumatic. Those are the big groups, you know, one, one through one, 1 1.5, 2, 3, 4, 5. And so then we can evaluate these for each person. And then we can make sure that you either, if you've, if you have no symptoms, that you stay that way. And we have, by the way, we haven't had a single person so far who's gone on prevention who has developed Alzheimer's disease. Wow. Now, time will tell, we'll see, but so far so good. Um, and then with respect to reversal, we've just completed a trial. We're very excited about that. We're just writing it up, uh, but the vast majority of the people actually improve. Now compare that, the people who have been on the anti-amyloid drugs, they don't improve, they don't stabilize. What they do is they slow the decline. And in the best studies, they slow the decline by about one third. So it's really uh, not terribly helpful. I do think it's going to be helpful as part of an overall plan. So for pre-code, you want to measure the various things in your blood. You want to simply look at, do you have a high HSCRP, for example? Do you have ongoing inflammation? Do you have decrease in specific trophic factors, nutrients, or hormones, which contribute to cognitive decline? Do you have insulin resistance? You want to know your HOMA IR, very easy to calculate. You want to know your, you know, your fasting insulin. 
Um, so you wanna know a set of parameters. And by the way, this is again, part of 21st century medicine. We, people uh, currently are unfortunately getting very tiny data sets and saying, yeah, we don't know what causes Alzheimer's. You know, you, you've got it, we don't know why. Well, we want to expand that, we want to increase. It's so interesting to me, you know, Google knows where we all shop. Uh, they have very sophisticated programs. Uh, Alexa knows what you're doing, what you're talking about, what you, all that sort of stuff. And so, but when it comes to our brains and it comes to our bodies, we're not using these wonderfully sophisticated programs to look at very, at, at larger data sets. You know, data sets, larger data sets are huge. And this is a major, major issue. So we want to look at these things and then say, okay, here's your set of risk factors. And so we can now use an algorithm, which we've developed a computer-based algorithm that will generate an optimal program for prevention or a separate one for reversal. And so for one person, it may be more about reducing uh, inflammation and getting rid of specific pathogens. For another person, it may be more about the insulin resistance. And for another person, it may be more about specific toxins, be they you know, biotoxins, organic, or what have you. So the idea then is to have a personalized precision medicine program for each person that will then give you an optimal chance to avoid, in pre-code, to avoid Alzheimer's to avoid symptoms, and then in recode it is to reverse. Now, no surprise, pre-code is easier. You don't have to look at as many parameters because you don't have a disease yet. You, you look at a smaller number of parameters. You look at, you don't have to have an extensive a program. It's therefore less expensive, but in fact, it could save people, so many people so much because the average person who develops Alzheimer's spends $350,000 before they die. Much of that on nursing homes. Nursing homes are often 80 to $100,000 per year. And there are of course, some that charge much more than that. So it's really horrific. And so avoiding that uh, by spending far, far less is actually quite a good idea for everyone's pocketbook. Once you actually are getting symptoms and now having cognitive decline, of course, this is a terminal illness unless you reverse the problem. So therefore, no question, we wanna pull out all the stops. We wanna look at a larger set of parameters. We wanna do everything possible. We wanna make sure to get you a health coach. We wanna make sure to get you a trained physician who can work with you. And again, the earlier, the better. Everybody who has SCI that gets on the program we've developed gets better. We've seen virtually everyone. As it goes along, most of the people with MCI can get better if you do the right thing. Some of the people with Alzheimer's, and we have seen some people even with MOCA scores of zero who improve, but it's much harder, it's less guaranteed, and it is often that they will, they will not improve all the way back to normal. They'll improve and they'll be able, for example, to dress themselves again and to speak again and that sort of thing. And we had a, I got a nasty letter written to me by a guy who said, hey, you've been telling people that you know, it, it works best when, when it's early, but my wife had a MOCA score of zero and she's doing quite well. We're very happy. So why did you say that? Okay. <laughs> but the bottom line is for most people, they're going to do much better if they start early on. Uh, and, and even, you know, that particular woman, she didn't come all the way back to normal, but she did improve from where she was. And just a clarification, a MOCA score is a cognitive measure and normal is like 23, right? And zero is uh, right. So, great. so MOCA scores go from zero to 30. Mm -hmm. uh, and most people who are normal will have a score of 28, 29 or 30. 
Uh, and so, so when you get even now, it's said to be normal 26 to 30, but most, most people, when they hit 26, they've clearly got some MCI. It is a good test and was set up for MCI. It's, it's for Montreal Cognitive Assessment. Um, and there are other similar ones, SLUMS, which is from the St. Louis University, uh, and MMSC, which is mini mental status. The, the, the MMSC is less sensitive. And so that's better for people who are farther along. That's better really for Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, uh, uh, the MOCA is really more for MCI, which is what it was designed for. And then CNS vital signs is quite good for SCI. So for people who are the, the earliest, a more sensitive test is CNS vital signs. And there are others, COG state and other ones that can be used as well. So yes, we wanna get, see people up in the 28, 29 or 30. And you're right, when you get to a zero of MOCA, you are in very, very late stage Alzheimer's disease. In fact, the average for all people with Alzheimer's on a MOCA is 16.2. So you can see that you know, when you're dropping down into the single digits, that those are very late stages. That's fascinating. Um, I, we share a lot of your same sentiment regarding data sets and not having a lot of available data. Um, my background is in tech before medical school. And so I came from an approach of like, we need to have wearable technologies on all of our patients. We need to be developing all these things. And then we joke around sometimes and say like, well, we were in our psychiatry rotation. We were like, you know, Amazon can probably predict uh, like a manic episode better than your doctor can because they, you know, they can see your shopping. They can, they know they have data, data points on everything that you do. And you know, this um, so is we're really so excited about that. Yeah, you know, this is a, such a good point. And actually, I put this in the next book, a quantified self, mm -hmm. because part of moving into 21st century medicine is that we actually can have a much bigger impact on our own health by quantifying. So everything now from you can check your temperature, you can check your sleep status, you can check to see you know, how much sleep you've had, what stages of sleep. Um, several people I know actually have found out that they had COVID-19 through their Oura ring. They noticed a little bump in their temperature, like, hey, what's going on here? And it turned out that they were just beginning to get COVID-19. Uh, you, can, you can check your oxygenation. You can check your continuous glucose monitoring. Um, you can check your ketone level. You can check your, your you know, 23andMe. You can look at your, your DNA. Um, it is amazing. You can check your heart rate variability, your vascular elasticity. There's so much that you can do. And therefore, this is helping because now you are seeing these things 20 years before a diagnosis. And now instead of saying, hey, oh my gosh, I can't remember things anymore, which is a late manifestation, you're early on, you're saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, my glucose is spiking. Uh, what's going on there? And then it's cratering as I go to bed at night and I'm waking up and I didn't realize that's what was waking me up at night. Uh, a lot of people that happens you, where they actually drop their glucose at night and they don't realize that that's what's waking them up. Or um, I didn't realize that my oxygenation, you know, SpO2, very interesting paper, just looking at your mean oxygen saturation at night, that correlated beautifully with the size of specific nuclei in the brain, including hippocampus. So as you're not getting enough oxygen at night, which so many people are doing and not realizing it, now we can catch these very early instead of waiting 20 years down the road and saying, oh my gosh, you have Alzheimer's, we can actually see these things as they are suboptimal and really give ourselves much more power. Uh, as Ariana Huffington said, it's not just about 
this reversal, it's really about performance. So you know, improving our performance earlier on is helping us with decline later on. I love that. That's great. Um, so besides, you know, we touched on a few things like taking control of our own health by wearing, you know, wearable technologies. Yeah. And is, is there any lifestyle factors that you recommend? And we had touched on this before, but our audience is kind of in that 18 to 30 range predominantly. So what is there anything that you would recommend this group of people do to kind of set themselves up and, and never really have to go down this road? Yeah, that's such a good point because, uh, you know, one of the guys who came in a few years ago, I told him, look, you are giving yourself Alzheimer's. And this is a guy who already had an abnormal PET scan, very, very intelligent doctor, but he didn't want to believe that he was actually giving himself Alzheimer's. Um, and he's done very well, by the way. Uh, so the thing is that, yes, the, the, with what we are doing with our exposures, there are so many things that are literally we are doing to ourselves to give ourselves Alzheimer's. Now, many of us are fortunate enough to you know, live long lives and not get it, uh, but that we are still driving ourselves toward it and it's giving us suboptimal cognition. So one of the interesting things is when people do pre-code or recode, they improve their normal cognition. So in fact, they do better. Um, and as Professor Mike Mersnick has pointed out, this sort of thing reduces, uh, you know, reduces accidents, reduces plane crashes, improves your, your performance at work, improves your performance in medical school, et cetera, et cetera. And so yes, no question, we started with what's in the test tube, the biochemistry, the signaling for APP, which is a, interestingly, a master switch. What this does is when it recognizes insults, it is cleaved at three different sites to produce four peptides, two inside the cell, two outside the cell, that signal downsizing. You are going into protective downsizing mode. You're killing the various uh, pathogens that are attacking you. You're dealing with toxins, but you are downsizing. That same molecule, APP, when things are good, you don't have that, that inflammation, you don't have the pathogens, you don't have the toxins, and you do have enough hormones and trophic support and nutrients. It is cleaved at a single site, the alpha site, to produce two peptides, SAPP alpha and alpha CTF, that are signaling now one outside the cell, one inside the cell, growth and maintenance. Hey, things are good. Let's build synapses. Let's, let's maintain them. You'll, you now have better cognition. And so absolutely, if you just ask the question, what alters your biochemistry and your neurochemistry so that you are making and keeping synapses? It absolutely includes your diet, your exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, detoxification, and there are some supplements you can use that are very simple actually, that will support this as well. So it does have to do with all the things. Now people have said, oh, it's just about lifestyle. No, the fundamental nature of the whole approach we're taking is that it's identifying what's actually causing the problem. We have been trying to treat Alzheimer's for a hundred years since it was first described in 1906 without knowing what caused it and just saying, let's throw this medicine or that medicine at it. And as I explained to the patients, it's like having a roof with 36 holes. You gotta find out which are the big holes. You gotta patch those holes if you're gonna have any impact. So that's why you wanna look at these, you know, these various different things. So, so let's start with diet. It turns out that diet, again, when I was in medical school, uh, there was one, one single nutrition class Still got it. and it was optional. 
We didn't have to take it. Oh my gosh. And, it, and the idea was, no, you just write a prescription or you go to surgery and that's what you do in medicine. Again, this is now, a, this is a 20th century approach. I went to medical school in the 20th century. It's an outdated approach. Outdated, we, but still kind of taught. Yeah, you know, it's absolutely true. So, you know, a, a really scary thing to me, I talked to a vice chancellor, an old friend of mine, actually, vice chancellor of a very major medical school uh, that will go unnamed. Uh, and he said to me, I gave him a copy of the first book. And he said, you know, we'd like to teach these sorts of things. This guy's known for his, for edu for being uh, at the forefront of education. He said, we'd like to teach this new medicine, but we can't do that until all doctors accept it. Well, of course, all doctors won't accept it until it's taught. So we're in this horrible catch-22. We're going around and around teaching old-fashioned things. And actually, one of the things he said was, we know we're lying to the medical students, but they keep believing our lies, so we keep lying to them. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. So, so we all, see it all around us, don't we worry. Wrong. <laughs> I had and a so, hunch. You know, it is, it's your generation that's gonna change this, that's gonna say, you know, new medicine is what's working. Precision medicine, 21st century medicine, larger data sets, more tech. I mean, tech is a huge part of the future. There should be seamlessly integrated helpers, just like you would have a, a, you know, a physician's associate or a medical student who's helping you. You want to have algorithms, software. So that's what we've been working with to create software that allows you to evaluate people with cognitive decline. Yeah. I mean, I really think that healthcare is synonymous with technology. And I mean, I, I say it all the time, but hospitals are tech companies. They're just yes. poorly run tech companies <laughs> yes. uh, with, without any tech expertise. Yes. And um, you know, it's so interesting to see this because Google has gotten into health. Of course, Google Health initially failed. Now there's Verily. Uh, of course, Amazon has gotten into health and they have a group, Amazon 1492, which is like looking at what's the future. All these groups are getting into health, but they're still kind of feeling their way around. It's like, what do we do? And, and interestingly, what they do is backwards. They go to a someone who is a leader in the field, who of course was taught the old fashioned way and say, what should we do about this? And the person says, oh, I, we should do it my way. And so they're, they're kind of feeling around. We need to make a fundamental change. And, and one of the tech gurus said to me one time, you don't disrupt a field from the inside. You don't say, okay, we're going to do it the way we've always done it. We're going to make incremental changes. You know, you disrupt from the outside. You create something better, something different um, that actually works better. So that's my interest to say, okay, what can we do to make fundamental changes in the way we think about, prevent, and reverse these neurodegenerative diseases. And so I think, you know, it, it's your generation that's going to make these complex chronic illnesses much, much less common. It really is gonna conquer these complex chronic illnesses that my generation has failed to conquer. Consider the global burden of dementia. This is a trillion dollar global problem. Uh, and it disrupt, I mean, as you know, it just disrupts so many lives, uh, just a huge issue. And, you know, just for perspective, um, there, we just passed 500,000 people who have died in the U.S. from COVID-19. And again, for comparison, of the currently living Americans, about 100 times that many, about 45 million Americans, 
will die from Alzheimer's. So the Alzheimer's numbers actually dwarf the COVID-19 numbers, you know, if we don't do something. So how would we go about constructing a public health program that made this an incredibly rare disease? So you might do like a, a pyramidal sort of program. You take everybody and get them on a simple prevention program. Now, if some of the people will break through that, okay? So then you get the next group of people, which is maybe 10% of that first group, or maybe even fewer. And now you're going to give them a bigger program. It's going to be more like a RICO program. Now, a small number of people will break through that program. So then you have to do a more extensive program. And then a very few people will break through that. And now you hospitalize those people and see what's actually driving this. With that sort of thing, you have the most efficiency while you're decreasing this global burden of dementia. So just as we had global programs for vaccination against polio and smallpox, we need to have such global pro uh, programs, different kind of vaccination in this case, of course, it's a different kind of prevention in this case, prevention and early reversal for these degenerative diseases. And you know, Alzheimer's is so common that in fact, this could have a huge, huge impact. Yeah, I mean, we completely agree with that. That's part of the reason why we started our TikTok account um, was to disseminate information and really cause self-empowerment with just basic lifestyle interventions that could um, prevent things like cognitive decline, decline or Alzheimer's. Uh, so we love the work that you're doing. It's so inspiring to hear that. Um, and I was just wondering, so specifically, if there's a diet someone wants to follow, um, is there anyone that you recommend that can slow cognitive decline? Oh, absolutely. And so there, there's a lot of information now on all these features, diet, exercise, sleep, stress. These things are all much more common contributors than people recognize and jumping in early is really helpful. So you can take a look in the book. We talk about it, the, the book that came out uh, the end of Alzheimer's program. We went into detail with the first book, people said, okay, we get it, you know, there's, we see how this works and we see that there are things to do, but we'd like to have some more detail. Uh, so tell us day to day, you know, what do we buy? What do we do? You know, again, in, in my group of physicians, people say, oh, diet's not important. Oh my gosh, it has a huge impact actually. And, you know, we're, we're all killing ourselves by eating the standard American diet. Uh, and giving ourselves metabolic syndrome and things like that. So yes, yeah, so we, uh, we talk about this as KetoFlex 12-3. So if you look at what actually helps the most for cognition, it is a mildly ketotic, plant-rich, not, not pure, but you wanna be a vegan, that's fine. Although be careful, vegan, uh, the changes that you'll get with B12 and vitamin D and things are the same things you see with Alzheimer's. So you've gotta be a little bit careful if you're vegan, but it's okay. Um, on the other hand, you want to have some meat, some fish. Great, that's fine too. Um, but you want to have a plant-rich, uh, high-fiber diet that is, you know, colorful. That is mostly organics on the plant side because, again, lots of toxins out there. Uh, and there, you can look at the dirty dozen versus the clean fifteen to see when it's okay to buy non-organic and when it's more important to buy organic. And then clearly high both soluble and insoluble fiber, very helpful. Helpful for detox, helpful for microbiome, helpful for your lipids, helpful, helpful for your glycemic load, all of these things. So very, very helpful. And then you wanna have critical periods of fasting. Now be careful if, you, if you're very, very thin, uh, you got a very low BMI, be careful about that. But for most of us, 
we want to have periods of fasting because that actually helps. As you know, fasting has all sorts of benefits. And, you know, we growing up, uh, we, you know, most of us have not done periods of fasting. So what we recommend as part of KetoFlex 12.3, the whole idea, the reason we call it KetoFlex 12.3 is because uh, it is a minimum of 12 hour fast between finishing your dinner, starting your breakfast. Now, some people like to do an extra fast once a month or even once a week, but for most people, just doing 12 to 16 hours at night is good enough. And so then at least three hours before bedtime. And so this helps you to get into autophagy. It helps you to get into ketosis as well and has all sorts of benefits. Fasting improves blood pressure. Um, it improves a lot of the things related to cognitive decline. The whole idea here is that you want to stay metabolically flexible. And so for most of us, what's happening is we're eating high carb diets and especially high simple carb diets over the years. And therefore we lose the ability to utilize ketones uh, as substrates. And so we don't have that metabolic flexibility. And we'll start to see as we're getting even into our 20s. And so this is, you know, we're talking, you're talking about what can we do in our 20s and 30s. And there's so much that you can do. Of course, obesity is associated with type 2 diabetes, which is, which is associated with increased risk for cognitive decline. So this is a huge issue. And then of course, you wanna have it so that you can, you can induce this nice ketosis. And this is, by the way, this is, if you look at a PET scan, you'll actually see that what happens in early Alzheimer's, even if you are APOE4 positive, even into your late 20s, you'll see decrease in glucose utilization in the temporal lobes and parietal lobes. That is the signature of Alzheimer's, even though at that time you don't have Alzheimer's, but you've already begun to show the brain changes that are associated in the future with Alzheimer's disease. So we recommend everyone, please check your APOE status. Again, here's another part of what we can all do for quantified self. Find out about your genome, find out about your risk for Alzheimer's. If you have zero copies of APOE4, which is about three quarters of the population, your chance for developing Alzheimer's over your lifetime is about 9%. It's not zero, but it's not terribly high. If you have a single copy, and that's 75 million Americans, most of whom don't know it, there your chance is 30%. But get on prevention, you can drive it to virtually zero. If you have two copies, and that's about 7 million Americans, your chance is well over 50%, approaching 90%, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you have two copies of APOE4, more, more likely than not, you will develop Alzheimer's during your lifetime. So no problem. Please get it checked out. Please get on prevention. You, again, you can drive this risk down very, very low. There is a wonderful website started by a person who's APOE4 uh, double positive, who's a homozygote. And that's Julie G. Uh, and she started this about, uh, about eight years ago or so. And it's called apoe4.info. The vast majority of the over 3,000 people on that site are actually on some version of our program uh, and doing very well. So the reality is we're now making this disease an option. 
instead of a requirement, instead of being ineluctable, you know, there's just nothing you can do about it here. So, uh, so th there is a tremendous amount. And so for the, with, with respect to the diet, that's the approach. It's called KetoFlex 12-3. As you know, lots published on Mediterranean diet, mine diet. These are all variations on the same theme. Some of them don't push you into ketosis. From everything that's been shown so far, it is better to get into ketosis. And you can cycle in and out, that's no problem. Again, you wanna be metabolically flexible. But what you don't wanna do is find yourself in a chronic uh, insulin resistant mode. Find out your HOMA IR, that's easy to do. Uh, and you wanna make sure that you are able to metabolize both fats and, uh, and carbs, and that you are not getting you know, just too many simple carbs and driving your uh, fasting insulin. Again, that's another big thing. In medical school, we're taught ah, homocysteine of 12, that's fine. Fasting insulin of uh, 15 or 20, that's fine. No, these are all suboptimal numbers. And again, we go through the, the target values. If your homocysteine is 12, you are at increased risk for cognitive decline. We wanna see it down below seven beautiful studies out of the UK showing that as your homocysteine goes above seven, uh, you have increased, uh, essentially accelerated gray matter loss and accelerated hippocampal volume loss. So again, there's a tremendous amount that you can do even in your 20s to make sure that you don't have cognitive decline. You know, your, your generation, really is going to have the option of whether you want to get Alzheimer's or not. You really can have a huge impact on this illness. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's super actionable, which we really appreciate. And I know our listeners appreciate as well. And I like that you highlight the flexibility because I think that there's research showing that um, our neurons actually do really well on ketones and metabolizing yeah. ketones, but actually our microglia, which are supporting cells do really well on metabolizing, metabolizing carbs. So you don't want to be only carb heavy yep. or only ketone heavy. Exactly. That's why you want to have the metabolic flexibility. Exactly. Oh, if we could get one more tip, I know our listeners would greatly appreciate it. And we try to stress it to them all the time about the importance of sleep. Um, yes. So you being a leader in the field, if you could just give them one tip about why sleep is so important and they shouldn't be pulling these all-nighters like they are. Man, such a good point. And Professor Matthew Walker you know, has written a nice book called Why We Sleep. Uh, great thing to take a look at. Um, and yeah, you know, and I went through the same thing. I pull all-nighters all the time. Uh, oh my gosh. I mean, the whole idea of internship, I think is just crazy. Uh, you know, I you're agree. Hurting, <laughs> you're, yeah, you're hurting yourself and you're hurting your patients. And we would have times when I was a, when I was an intern where I would miss not only one night of sleep, but then the next night as well. And so, you know, by the third or fourth day, oh my God, we had times when we'd be on for four nights in a row. And just, now that's been changed, thankfully. Um, but boy, I mean, I'm sure it damaged my brain. And I could, I could see the difference in my own uh, function when I finished my residency and started getting on a more normal schedule. So yeah, I think this is something that, you know, we as physicians have to take a much more careful look at and say, we're, you know, we're damaging the treatment of the patients as well as damaging our own trainees by making them stay up all night. So absolutely, there are multiple factors about sleep that are absolutely critical. And a lot of the people that we see that turn around and do very well, part of that change is in their sleep. So number one, 
And the, of course, you want to try to get eight hours of sleep a night. And I know some people will just laugh at that. Many people are getting, you know, four or five hours of sleep a night. Well, you know, you're hurting yourself by doing that. Please try to get eight hours of sleep. But it's not just about quantity. Second thing, make sure that you're not dro you know, dropping your oxygen at night. So many people that we see coming in with some cognitive changes, even early on that say, you know, something's not quite right. When you check their oxygenation, it should be 96 to 98% uh, saturation at, while you're sleeping. And you can check that. Um, look, I've got an Apple Watch here. You can check that with your Apple Watch at night. You can check it with better BEDDR is another way to go. You can, of course, you can just get an oximeter, stick it on your finger. You can do a sleep study, lots of ways to look at your nocturnal oxygenation. It, you know, it's, it's just as critical to know these things as to know that you've got early diabetes. You know, this is something that's going to impact you over the long haul. And then the third thing to know what you're, you know, how much time are you spending in the various sleep stages? Are you getting enough REM sleep? Are you getting enough slow wave sleep? That's huge. And then making sure that you kind of you know, decrease at night, you have good sleep hygiene. Uh, for people who are like going crazy uh, right up until sleep and then just cannot get to sleep, of course, that's hurting them as well. So all these things are critical. Maybe you need a little nap in the afternoon. Okay, no problem. That, you know, that can, again, help you to stay sharp. Um, hey, are you doing Adderall to do, you know, Adderall is a short-term approach. You know, we want to give you things. So we have to have a chapter in the new book, uh, which is uh, called Enhancing Normal Cognition. This is in the first survivors. And so taking normal cognition and can you now enhance that? So yes, there's the short-term strategy like Adderall, but that is short-term and that damages you in the long-term. What are the things that you can do to have not only a short-term effect in your 20s and 30s, but also to have a long-term effect, to have better synaptic maintenance, better synaptic formation? How do you increase your brain-derived neurotrophic factor? How do you increase your nerve growth factor in a way that actually helps you in the long run? And that does involve things like brain training, and does involve things like you know getting your uh, increasing your BDNF, and there are things, it's a whole set of things that you can do for those things, and getting your making sure that your hormones are doing well. So again, it's about performance, which will not only help you now but help you for the future. I have to tell you that I very much so appreciate your um, openness to all these different new technologies, and also looking at the way you know doctors are being trained and the yeah. way all these things that are, are negatively affecting our health that have just been a way that they are just because that's the way that they've always been. Um, but we're really approaching a time and I guess throughout human history where we really can make these changes. And it's really exciting for, for people who are open to it. And so I really appreciate that you are open to all these things. Thanks. Well, you know, here's the interesting thing. And, and you know, you guys are obviously being trained as the, as physicians. So We've all been taught as physicians, you know, there's a lot of BS out there. You got to be careful. You know, you are the now going to be the experts. You're going to make the decision what's real, what's not real. And, you know, there's some wonderful uh, quotes from, uh, from, uh, from Richard Feynman, uh, brilliant, brilliant uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist. And, and one of the points he made is, you know, that it's easy to fool yourself. You got to be really careful. So what we're trying to do is say, yes, we recognize there are people out there pushing supplements that, are, that just don't work or that are, they have the wrong things in them. Okay, we as the experts have to look at what's real and what's not real. But the history of medicine is replete with our not accepting things that were actually working 
In general, Silicon Valley has been about disruption, as you know. Medicine has been about tradition and permission. And often it's because of primum non nocri, right? We don't wanna hurt the patient. But unfortunately, we're now hurting the patients by letting them get things like Alzheimer's. We need to be a little more disruptive, but we need to be honest with ourselves. What's really working? What's really not working? Maybe that crystal on the forehead is really not doing what someone's trying to claim it does, right? On the other hand, maybe there are things with brain stimulation. There are things with getting improved sleep. There are things with quantified self that actually are working and that actually are helpful. And I've, I've always been interested in history of medicine. You look at a great example is scurvy. Scurvy was cured about 10 different times. So people would find in century, 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, recurrently people would say, aha, here's something we can do about this disease. And then experts would say, no, that, is, that really isn't helpful. And people would then go back to not using it and people would die again. You look at the, the story of, uh, of Dr. Semmelweis, who you know, recognized that, hey, people were dying after delivery because of something carried uh, on the medical student's hands from the autopsy suite. And even though nobody understood the germ theory in 1830, he said, hmm, there must be something there. It actually happened because his friend died after accidentally slicing himself during an autopsy. So he recognized, ah, it's something to do with something going on. And the medical students are carrying it from the autopsy suite to the women who are delivering. So he developed, okay, you can wash your hands with this, uh, with this hypochlorite solution. And he was able to drive the the mortality rate for that group from 15% to virtually zero. So huge mortality rate down to virtually zero. And so people said to him, you're crazy, this is ridiculous. And he ended up, he was forced to go into a mental institution where he died from an infection, ironically. So we haven't, and of course it turned out the guy was right. So we haven't as physicians, sometimes we're trying to be so careful. Um, that we haven't allowed people to do things that were new and that were helpful. And that's why I think, you know, small, small evaluations, N of one, you know, the N of one medicine is now coming up, looking at, because people are complicated, looking at these larger data sets on fewer people, because it's no longer good enough to say everyone's about the same, let's give them all the same medicine and let's see if they do well as a whole, as a group. Um, you know, we're, we're losing group medicine. We're saying, yes, N of one medicine is going to be more important, larger data sets, looking more deeply at the pathophysiology and at the drivers of these illnesses. 21st century medicine is about root cause. 20th century medicine, we learned about what? What is it? What's the diagnosis? Is it measles? Is it Alzheimer's? What is it? 21st century medicine is about why is it? Why did you get this? You, it typically, it's, doesn't, it's complicated now, and you, that's where computers are gonna be very helpful to us. Wearable technology, hugely helpful, and looking at our patients as more complicated organisms, not as a simple, what's the prescription I write? So that's the way things are headed, and you guys are the ones that are gonna make this happen. No, we, we really appreciate that perspective, and you can see it now too with uh, things like meditation, people didn't used to believe in meditation. Now there's hundreds of studies <laughs> showing yeah. the benefits of meditation or nutrition. Like you were saying, I mean, we're still not even taught about nutrition in, in medical school, but yeah. uh, food plays such a vital role in 
um, all of our gene regulation and all the proteins that, and all of the mechanisms going in on our body, going on in our body. Um, yeah. You know, it's a really good point. You know, I, one thing I would say, you guys should think about setting up a course called Modern Medicine that they didn't teach you in medical school <laughs> and talk about the things that are actually coming out that simply aren't being taught in medical school. That, that's an excellent idea. Amanda's actually working right now to get, you know, nature and, th- and like implementation of nature um, into the curriculum for patients. And then yeah. I've tried to get um, artificial intelligence, a course yeah. taught by Stanford. I've gotten a lot of pushback for that, yeah. um, trying to get that involved. And then I, I wanted to get a blockchain course, you know, just electives to kind of introduce Absolutely. students to these tools that are going to be essential for every aspect of our career in the near future. Yes, there are fundamental changes that are being made in medicine. And unfortunately, there's too much pushback right now uh, from the old-fashioned guys teaching the old-fashioned medicine. Yeah, Yeah. hopefully things will change and we'll keep pushing. Um, But so lastly, we ask every guest to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. The future is closing the complexity gap. And here's what I mean by that. When you look at a driverless car, or you look at a computer flying an airplane, what happens is you have a task and the task has a certain complexity. And then you have to write a program that addresses that complexity. And if it doesn't do that, then the plane's gonna crash or the car is gonna hit somebody or whatever. What's happened in medicine, this is where we've had a huge complexity gap. We as physicians are dealing with organisms that are incredibly complex. I mean, the 3.3 billion base pairs of the genome are just the simplest because that's unidimensional. But then you have the proteome and the foldome and the exposome and the microbiomes and all these sorts of things. So you have this incredibly complex organism that now comes to you and says, something's not working right. Uh, My cognition is not good, or I have a rash or, you know, whatever. I feel bad, what what have you. And what we do is we get a very, very tiny data set that tells us almost nothing of the complexity of this organism. So we suffer from a massive complexity gap. And therefore, over the millennia, we physicians have had to be good guessers. You know, we talk about having intuition, but we're really saying we're kind of guessing. From everything we can see, it's probably something like this, but we don't have the data to work with. And so it's very, very inexact. And a lot of people are dying from these complex chronic illnesses because of that. So the future is closing that complexity gap so that we now are able to say, aha, this is why you have schizophrenia. This is why you have ADHD. This is why you have autism spectrum disorder. This is why you have ALS, frontotemporal dementia, all these things where we've given them names that, uh, that don't tell you anything about what's causing them. Now you're going to be able to say, we know exactly for each person, you're going to have an n-dimensional vector, you know, the vector in n-dimensional space, where it looks at all these different parameters and now says, here's where you live, your physiology is living right here. And that area is associated with blank, cognitive decline, schizophrenia, what have you. Therefore, we're going to drive you back toward an optimal place in this n-dimensional space. And here's the set of things we can do. And yes, it's going to include your nutrition. And yes, it's going to include your hormones and your, and it's going to include all these different things. And so with this closing of the complexity gap, you're going to be able to virtually end all of these complex chronic illnesses. These are diseases 
of our trying to live in a way that our species did not evolve to live in. We've got all these exposures. We got all, we have all these things. We've got all these various organisms entering our brains and things like that. And we're gonna be able to improve this for everybody. And now you know, these, this whole set of diseases, which is what's killing us today, unlike a hundred years ago where people were dying from things like tuberculosis and pneumonia and things like that, mostly most of us now are dying of these complex chronic illnesses and you're going to be able to mostly eradicate these things by closing the complexity gap. Wow. Dr. Bredesen, that was wonderful. Um, I, I love, so we've always had this doom and gloom and negativity talking about Alzheimer's. And I think what you really brought in today's conversation, not just about Alzheimer's, but the future of medicine and chronic disease is true optimism. Like I feel very optimistic about the future. So I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. Um, I mean, we touched on the quantified self and how everyone can feel self-empowered. And I, I feel like everyone's kind of felt like their health has been in the hands of someone else, but we can really take control of our health now. And so I really appreciate that. And we can use our personal data to, to close this complexity gap and essentially treat all these chronic diseases that everyone's been in struggling with. So thank you for all the work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And listen, go, go out and, and make this happen. You know, you're going to change the world and make it such a better place. We are, I think we're going to look back on the current period uh, as, as really an area, uh, essentially a barbaric area. It's the dark ages of Alzheimer's where we said, oh, no, we don't know what causes it. There's nothing that fixes it. It's all about amyloid. Let's try to get rid of the, oh my gosh, we're going to look back on this period and say, what were we thinking? <laughs> and I think that you know your generation is going to make this a very, very rare disease. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a past scourge, just like leprosy is a past scourge. We look back at the period you know, where, where leprosy was a scourge, where syphilis was a scourge, where polio was a scourge, all these things. That's the, the direction Alzheimer's is gonna go. It's gonna be a past scourge. I have one last question. So yeah. during my graduate studies, I was taught that you know once you cure heart disease and cure all these, then all that you're left with is Alzheimer's once people are living that long. So once that's it, what's after that? Is there anything? Great point. And so you know um, what we found is that at the heart of Alzheimer's, it's really, a insufficiency. You can literally write an equation of the things that your brain needs for making and keeping synapses. And when you fail, you're on the wrong side of that balance, you're, you know, you're going to get Alzheimer's. So great point. Let's get rid of that now. When you get rid of Alzheimer's, uh, then I think, so it's very interesting. What's going to happen is what we call aging currently is really going to be separable into two things. One thing is really just saying you suck at living. You know, you're doing the wrong things for living, right? You're, you're giving yourself all these chronic illnesses. You're, you know, your, your glycemic load is too much, you're too sedentary, you're exposed to to toxins. Those are all really not aging. Those are again, just, you know, you're sucking at living, but then there's, what's going to happen is really interesting. That's going to fall away. Now you're going to see what true aging is about. You're going to see what's happening. Your telomeres are shortening. You know, there is still this phenomenon, time dependent. Then we're really going to be able to focus on that. How can we impact that? Just as we're currently impacting cognition, how can we now impact the aging process? And of course, there's already stuff going on there. But right now, it's being kind of muddied by the fact that this is all wrapped into one. We call it aging. But a lot of it is suboptimal living. 
we're going to see the more fundamental aspects uh, that are related to aging, things that change with time, your stem cell exhaustion and things like that. And we're going to be able to optimize those things, I think. And then, then I think you are going to see you know, routinely people live to 120, uh, be you know, very healthy to pretty much till the end. I think that's what's gonna happen after we get rid of all these chronic complex illnesses. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Future is Healthy podcast. If you loved what you heard, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone you know can benefit from any of the info we talked about, share this with friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. We don't rely on paid ads so that you can trust we have no conflict of interest in any of the information we provide or talk about in this podcast. If you support what we're doing, you can help us to continue putting out content by clicking the link to support the Future is Healthy podcast. This podcast is for general education purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment, diagnoses, or professional medical advice. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other qualified professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information from this podcast and any of the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. If you are seeking advice for any medical condition, it is important to seek the assistance from a qualified, trained, and licensed medical practitioner.